Well, it is so good to be back with you. I, I've missed Wednesday nights. Uh, I won't ask if you have, because some of you will probably say no. Um, but I'm glad that you, if, if you haven't been a part of Wednesday night community in the past, this is just, it's a weekly gathering, and we come together for a time of, of worship. Uh, we, we open up scripture, and, and we spend some time really studying, getting into the goal, is that we get into scripture and that it gets into us, because it's this fabulous, beautiful narrative, this epic story where we learn what God is doing in the world and we can actually uh, connect our story, which feels sometimes chaotic and messy and at least mine does, to this story and it, and it gives it new meaning. And so we, we do that at different times. Um, and uh, we also have maybe the best part of the night is we have like coffee and snacks. So uh, Rebecca, I saw her earlier. I don't know if, if any of our other uh, gals were here helping, but thank you so much for doing that. Can we thank them and just, uh, it's time to show up and set up and tear down. And so, um, and feel free to get up during the night, go get some coffee, especially if you're gonna fall asleep. I'd rather you stand up and walk than me listen to you snore. Um, late night. Um, we're, we're, we're jumping into a series, a uh, 10 week series, because we've got 10 weeks this semester, on the 10 commandments. And um, 10 commandments are, are kind of a unique thing in, in our culture, right? They're, they're a point of contention, right? I mean, from whether it be, you know, debates on should they be displayed publicly in you know, government buildings and things like that. They've, they've been used in, in churches throughout the years uh, for, for catechism, teaching new believers. Um, the 1604 um, canon of the Anglican church required that all Anglican churches have them inside and they would oftentimes have them in uh, on the stained glass windows. So it's something that has been a part. And if you think about it, even Western law has been shaped in many, many ways by some of the things that we find in the Ten Commandments. And of course, there's debate to what degree. One author, Patrick Miller, a commentator um, on the Ten Commandments, made this statement. He said, the specific impact of the Decalogue, we'll kind of, you'll hear that phrase, but we'll kind of explain what that is, on American constitutionalism is a subject of debate. But it is clear that it has had and continues to have a formative and normative role in much discussion of judicial and political matters in the United States. And so even the language of the Ten Commandments, would you say this, that it's, it's sort of, um, it carries with it the idea of like, this is the core, this is like what you need to know. I looked up on Amazon books that have the phrase Ten Commandments, and, and there were things like, the Ten Commandments on working in a hostile environment. <laughs> The Ten Commandments on marriage. The Ten Commandments for hockey parents. Lessons learned by breaking them all. The Ten Commandments on financial happiness. Feel richer uh, with what you've got. The Ten Commandments, uh, the deal makers, Ten Commandments. Ten essential tools for business forged in the trenches of Hollywood. Ten Commandments of parenting. Ten Commandments of negotiation. It was probably the exact same book. Ten Commandments of leadership. Ten Commandments of Dating, How to Stop Getting Hurt, Put Yourself Out There, and Find a Relationship That Lasts. Ten Commandments of No-Fail Strategies for Permanent Weight Loss. Ten Commandments for R&B Drumming, A Comprehensive Guide to Soul, Funk, and Hip-Hop. I probably could have written that. Uh, and then the only one that I probably would have bought on this list, which actually sounds good, The Ten Commandments of Barbecuing. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm, I might need to get that. 
But the Ten Commandments come to us first in, in the, the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And if you have your bulletin, you can open it up and we're going to walk through some of that in here. Oh, I forgot to do one thing before we jump into that. On the back of your bulletin, two quick announcements that I just wanted to uh, mention. One is on Sunday mornings. This last week, we, we just began a number of our Sunday morning Bible study classes. They're open you can jump in any time. The list is on the back. Some really good ones here. If you're looking for a place to kind of um, connect with other believers, grow in your faith, have good discussions and that sort of thing, show up at one of these classes. We've got great teachers who are facilitating these. And then secondly is um, Dr. Jim Lindsay and I are, are going to be doing our uh, fourth annual uh, study tour to Israel. This one's going to be a little different. We're actually also adding a, a two days in Jordan. And so it's an Israel-Jordan study tour. It's over spring break. Uh, we've got this Sunday, I think we have an info meeting, if you want to like just come and hear anything about it. Uh, website's on there, so anyway, just be aware of those. So the Ten Commandments, they come to us in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And the, uh, the book of Exodus, you can break down really simply. There's like three parts to it, and I think it's in your outline there. Um, chapters 1 through 15, is, it's the oppression of Israel in Egypt. And then from chapters 15 to 18, it's just the events of them after they have uh, left Egypt. Remember, God brings the plagues on Pharaoh. How many of you have seen like the Ten Commandments movie, right? That's like what I always think about. That's such a good movie. Not very accurate in a lot of ways, but it's a really good movie. Um, and so there, there are events on the way going to Sinai, and then that should have been down on the next line there, chapter 18 through 40. This is just like stuff that happens at Sinai. <laughs> so that's kind of how you break up the book. And, and the Israelites, after they're released from slavery, God brings them out into the desert. Because remember, he keeps saying to Pharaoh, release my people so they can go out into the desert and worship me. And so they go out in the desert and they camp at the foot of this mountain, and they stay there for like a year. They just stay there at the foot of this mountain for about a year. And so <clears throat> th th there are some indications uh, textually. In a, you can see them kind of in how the narrator has put things together that are trying to underscore, hey, reader, these are really important. <laughs> and those primary ways that the author has done that is through repetition. Um, the Ten Commandments are the only commandments set of commandments that are mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Uh, they do it through placement. It comes right at the very beginning of um, any commands, highlighting it, and then showing the divine authorship. And by that I mean, this is the only thing that God actually speaks these, and we'll read this here in, in the text in a second, speaks them out loud, and the people overhear it. We're also told that it's by the finger of God that these are given. So it's this idea that these are enduring things. These are important things. And so we see that here. And so tonight, what I want to do, this is going to be more, um, I just want to set the stage. We're, we're really not going to get into any of the commandments. If you were like, really, ooh, I was really looking forward to like number six or something. Um, each week, we're going to do a different one. So next week, how we kind of group them, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I just want to set the stage tonight. I want to talk a little bit about like Cole's concept of like covenant and then laws and like are there different kinds of laws. Just kind of get our head around. Does that make sense? So let's do this. Let's start by reading the chapter that leads right up to the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments come to us in Exodus 20. 
And then again, as I mentioned, they get restated in Deuteronomy because when they're first given to the first group of people, like on a scale of one to 10, how good is Israel at keeping the commandments? <laughs> yeah, like, like a zero, right? Horrible. So they wander in the, in the desert. And then when Moses is taking their, their kids, next generation into the promised land, he goes, oh, I should tell you what uh, your parents knew. Let me, let me restate it for you. So in Deuteronomy 5, he walks through them again. And so we'll be kind of mentioning those two places. But this is, Israel has just come to the foot of this mountain. They're camping there. They're going to be there for a year. And this is what leads up to it. It's chapter 19. You can open your Bibles or turn them on, or you should have it, but it's really tiny type, sorry, in your, in your bulletin. We read this chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, so they've been traveling for three months, they've just hit it there. On that very day, they came to the desert at Sinai. After they set out, um, they entered the, oh, sorry. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert at, of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. So here's the message. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Essentially, you saw how I am far more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. Like I am, I am, I'm unmatched in my power. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey and keep my commandments, my, my covenant, sorry, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me. Now, if you have your pen and you're underline this statement here, because we're going to kind of come back to this, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. End of, end of the uh, message. These are the words that you were to speak to the Israelites, God says. So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, sign us up. Right? We're in. So Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking. They're going to hear these Ten Commandments to you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, have them wash their clothes, be ready by the third day. Because on that day, underline this next little part here, the Lord will come down, this descent, his, his presence on Mount Sinai, in the sight of the people. And he says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them this, uh, hey, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, May they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them. They washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, 
There was thunder, lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in, underline this next word, fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled, underline that next word, violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord, underlined descended. The Lord descended from the top to the top of the mountain and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to them, the people cannot come up to the mountain because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And we'll talk a little bit about the whole concept of sacred space. The Lord replied, go down, bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And then chapter 20, this is, this, this is where the commandments are coming. And God spoke all these words. Maybe he's doing it out loud. The people are hearing it. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he he proceeds. If you're reading your own Bible, you'll see the Ten Commandments follow right from that. And that's what we'll be stepping through each one, each week as we go. Now, first thing, what is this weird stuff with the mountain? Like the space, you know, like you can't touch it and all that sort of thing. And um, this becomes the whole concept of sacred space. And what you, what you find is the mountain, um, many of you, if you've read the Old Testament, you've, are you familiar with like the tabernacle and the temple and how there are different spaces to it, right? There's like the holy of holies, like the inner part, only one person you know, can go there. It's like the hot spot of God's presence. And then there's the holy place that's a little bit larger area outside of that. And then there's the, the court, right? And this what we're seeing is the author speaking of the mountain and God speaking of the mountain as that this is God's temple. In fact, in verse 24, you see there are actually three parts of the mountain that the people have to engage in the same way that they will engage shortly with the desert tabernacle. So the summit of the mountain, it corresponds to the Holy of Holies or the inner sanctum. There's about halfway up on the mountain. It's like zone two and it, it, it's corresponding to the outer sanctum or the holy place. And then the third zone, the foot of the mountain, this is analogous to the outer courts. And so just as you know, Moses alone can summit, so only later the high priest will be able to go into the temple. Like you see what, what they're setting up here? Um, in chapter 24, just the elders can go up to this sort of second zone. In the similar way, just the priests in the tabernacle or temple are able to go into the holy place. And then similarly, just as the, the laity are kept in the outer court where the um, altar of burnt offerings is, that corresponds to the foot of Sinai where there's also an altar built there. And then God appears in, in what, what biblical scholars call a storm theophany. 
It's a big word, right? Use that like at a party sometime. People are like, you're intelligent. Is that a theophany? Um, a theophany is an appearance of God in some sort of manifestation, like some sort of way that, that he visually shows up to engage with a person. And this is a common thing with Yahweh God is showing up as this sort of storm theophany. And so just kind of put that, put that away because we'll come back to that here in just a minute. So let's do this. Let's pause and take a look at some helpful language as we go here over the next few weeks into this that are really helpful to understand when we talk about like the Ten Commandments or we talk about the Sinai Covenant. Now, first question is, what should we call these ten things? Well, you might be like, Brent, they're the Ten Commandments. Have you not looked at the title? I mean, these are the ten. Well, it's not that simple. <laughs> it's actually a little bit more complex than that. Um, they're not called the Ten Commandments here in, in chapter 20 where they're given. It's not until chapter 34 that they're named, and they're not called Ten Commandments. Um, the word for commandments in Hebrew is mitzvot. So they're not called the Ten Mitzvot. It's a different word. They're called the Ten Devarim. Devarim just means words. They're called the Ten Words. Um, Jews living in Egypt, speaking Greek, when they translated the Hebrew Bible, they called these the Decalogoi. We call it the Decalogue, right? We used that word earlier. Logos meaning word, decaten, the ten words. So more accurately, technically, if this were like a Hebrew exegesis class, we would have to call these the ten words because they're not technically the ten commandments. But um, anyway, it's sort of shows, but that, that leads to why there's actually some disagreement with people about how should we number these? Like, how should we think of them? Um, I, I printed out one of these. This comes from uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. He's a uh, Old Testament scholar, uh, Semitic languages kind of guy. And he did this really helpful chart. Do you see this? Do you, do you have this here? On the left-hand side um, are the verses 2 through 17, and, and kind of 12 sections there. And then on the right-hand side, there are the three columns. Do you see that? The first green column, this, this is how the Hebrew Bible organizes them. And, and as you'll see, verse 2, it actually treats this as a command, as a word, as a commandment. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you might go, well, there's no imperative there, Brent. Like, that's not even a command. Yeah, I know. Um, the, the Reformed Anglican Protestant view is to treat verse 2 as, as like the preface leading into it. And then, you shall have no other gods before me as the first one. And then the um, Roman Catholic and Lutheran view is to put all of those together. <laughs> and then they take the 10th commandment about covening and they split that into two separate ones. Okay? We all know the Lutherans are wrong, right? Can, we, can I hear an amen? No, <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Love those Lutherans. Um, but this, this kind of shows you, okay, there, there, there's some question as to like, how do we count and this sort of thing? And we could have a big, long debate about it. And like two of you are probably interested in it. So I, I don't bring it up as a, as a way to like, here's the way to view it. But just as to say that there's sometimes a lack of clarity of how do we read this? Because um, in fact, the Jews, if, if you were to ask a... Um, a rabbi say during the rabbinic period, like the medieval, medieval ages, and you say, how many commandments are there in these? They would say 13. Because they would say, well, I count number one, 
And then there's three of the next, have no other gods, don't make idols, don't bow down to them. And you add the rest up, that's 13. And then you'd look like a deer in the headlights, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, but we will just use for the sake of this, the common parlance of these are the 10 commandments. Okay. Most Jews and Christians use that language today. These are the 10 commandments, but it just kind of gives you a little bit of ideas to some of the stuff going on in this, uh, that some questions that arise out of the text. So there are the 10 commandments, but if you ask the Jews, they will say there are actually more than 10 commands in scripture. They count the number at 613. If, as they count them all up and you know, get out the doubles and all that sort of thing, that, that there are 613 unique commands according to the Hebrew mindset. Now, these, um, and there are some words here that I'll kind of give you some definitions for as we're going. Do you see some of those? And I might kind of jump around, so sorry. Um, statues and ordinances. Do you see that? Statutes and ordinances come after the Ten Commandments, and here's the thought, because the Ten Commandments need to be interpreted. The Ten Commandments need to be applied to given like, a lot of different circumstances and going on. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, he was a Hellenistic Jew living in roughly the same time as Jesus, born a few years before. But he, he, made, he made this comment about thinking about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and then all the other 613, Okay and those thinking of those as statutes and ordinances. He said this, the Decalogue encompasses the whole of the Torah, meaning that's all of God's direction. Those 10 encompass it all. He says, for all of the laws, he's, and by that he's meaning ordinances, statutes, simply elaborate in detail what the 10 commandments say in compressed form. Now, there was another Jew living about the same time who said something similar. Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. Seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all of the law and the prophets, the Torah, hang on these two commandments. So he's saying, like Philo, all of the Torah is in compressed form, and love God, and love neighbor. <clears throat> and we see how these laws, these statutes or ordinances that, that come after, they're trying to interpret the, old, the, the uh, Ten Commandments. So for instance, Exodus 22, uh, we read this, this is just two chapters later. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep, that's Eighth Commandment, stealing, and slaughters it or sells it, must pay back five head of, head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. That's sixth commandment, right? It's not murder. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Sixth commandment. So you see the, the rest of the, of the laws, the ordinances and statutes, they're taking these 10 core things and saying, well, what about in this case? Well, what about if a guy comes in your house? Well, is it daytime? Is it nighttime? You know what I mean? It's, it's applied life. Like, how do these things really apply in life? And so that gets us to what, how we understand a lot of those. They are, they are what's called casuistic. That's the next word in your outline there. Casuistic laws are if-then laws. 
if X, then Y. If you steal someone's ox, then you have to pay it back that way. Okay? Those are casuistic laws. And again, we have to understand the context of these laws is an Iron Age, agrarian, rural people. These are not laws that dropped out of heaven <laughs> that are for everyone at all times. These statutes and ordinances are very, very specific to Israel and not Israel for Israel at a particular point in time. That's why Paul himself says, we who are under the new covenant, we're under Jesus, we don't live by the terms of the Sinai covenant. But then he does something really interesting. He will go and he will quote some obscure law in the Old Testament, some statute or um, a command in there, like um, how you should treat your ox. And then he takes a principle from it and he applies it to wise Christian living, which is so interesting. If you want to see an example of that, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the ox thing and goes, hey, there's wisdom in this. There's deep wisdom in how God was leading this ancient Iron Age people. And we can apply some of those principles to our life today, but they're not the terms by which I relate to God. Are you, are you with me on that? And then the second kind of laws are apodictic laws. That's another good word. Huh? Who, who comes up with these words? Apodictic laws. These are absolute prohibition. You shall not. Right? Absolute prohibition. Don't do this ever, ever, never, ever. <laughs> okay? Um, the Ten Commandments, which form do they come in? Apodictic? Yeah. They're all like, thou shalt not, right? Eight of them are in the negative, don't. Two of them are in the positive, do. And there's nothing that's significant to that. Each one of them has a negative and positive side to it here. Um, now, here, here's a question. What is Israel's motivation for obeying these laws? See, oftentimes we, we kind of mistakenly read this and we go, oh, they're doing this so that God will save them. They're doing this to earn their place as God's people. They're doing this as this sort of like, okay, you know, God, you're, you're in my debt now. That's not, that's not what's going on at all here. Obeying laws was never about putting God in your debt. Hey, I've done my share. You know, okay, you need to pony up now, right? Because I've done what I was supposed to. See, God didn't tell them, and this is important. He didn't go to them in Egypt and say, here, you do these things and I'll get you out. <laughs> I'll save you if you can do this. It's, it's completely reversed, isn't it? He saves them. He redeems them is the ancient word. He buys them. He says, you're mine now. <laughs> and now that you're, you're my family, that's the language he uses. You're my family. He uses marital language. He uses uh, parental language. You're my family. And this is how we do life in my family. But it's never about if you want to get into my family, you had better keep this list. Every morning, make the list so you can make sure that you're in the family. Are you with me on that? That's not what is going on here. But we have that tendency, sometimes because of some things that have been taught in church history, of, oh, that's how this covenant. It's all works and no grace. No. It started out by grace. Grace was the salvation. I saved you. <laughs> That's sheer grace. They did nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it. And so this is a key idea here. The people of Israel didn't earn the status of being God's covenant people by keeping laws. 
Rather, it's because they already were the people of God that he gave them these laws. And so what God is calling them to is believing loyalty. I want you to believe in me exclusively and be utterly loyal to me. And then the way you show that loyalty is by obedience to me. That's just a demonstration. But the obedience is not what I'm looking for. The point of this is not to perform. God's not saying, I just want you to do all these things. He's saying, I want you to believe. I want you to trust me. Like, that's what I want my kids to do, right? I want them, when I tell them something that they agree with and they understand, or that they don't agree with and they don't understand, what I want more than anything else is to say, because this is the basis of our relationship, trust me that dad knows. You don't understand this fully, but trust me. This will be best. I know it doesn't feel right. It doesn't sound good. Trust me. I've been there. I've walked that. Trust me. That is what God is looking for. And that's what's so important about whether you view it as the first commandment or, or the preface going into it. If you look at the very last line of your text, it says, I, uh, and God spoke these words, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Remember, God is not looking for performance. He's looking for trust. I want you to trust me and have faith in me. Exodus 6-7, listen to what's repeated. Repetition is one way an author will show you what's important. Listen to what is repeated again and again and again in the narrative. Exodus 6-7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land. Exodus 7-5, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Exodus 8, 9, and 10, uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, look, I'll give you the honor. You can pick, you know, when I'll pray to have these, uh, the frogs, you know, stop. And, and uh, he says, tomorrow. And Moses says, okay, it'll be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like Yahweh, our God. Exodus 14, 18, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. See, this is poetic justice because the smart aleck comment that Pharaoh made when Moses came is, who's Yahweh? Well, now he knows. <laughs> now he knows. Now the Israelites know they saw it. Now the rest of the Egyptian people know they saw it. Do you remember some of the Egyptians believed and they actually went with the Israelites. We're told that a mixed multitude, some of Israel's neighbors saw this and they, I know now who this God is. He's, he's the thing. I'm, I'm going with them. So there were Egyptians leaving to follow Yahweh because they knew. Well, now I know. Now I know that you're, now I know that you're the God of gods. And I will give strict loyalty to you. Now, one, one just quick observation um, about the idea of God making covenants, because I think this is really significant. A covenant is a formal partnership. Just think of it like that. Pretty simple. A covenant, it's a formal partnership. And so first covenant God makes with Noah. Remember that? And the covenant is, I'm going to make this a safe place for you to live and keep going on. <laughs> then he makes a covenant, a formal partnership with Abraham. And he says, through, through your family, I'm going to bring back my blessing on the earth that was lost on page three in the garden. 
I'm going to bring back my blessing. And this covenant, this formal partnership with Israel, the Sinai covenant, it's just a continuation of that exact same thing going on. They're, they're all connected. Now, here's, here's the idea I want us to see, because this is, I think, important, and it has some application to how we live and how we walk and trust Jesus. When God wants to rescue his world, he always does it by entering into a partnership with humans. Always. Anytime God acts, it's, it is rare in Scripture. I challenge you to go, it's rare. Anytime that God does anything significant, and he doesn't do it in partnership with a person, with a human being. See, he wants to engage humans in the fullness of our dignity and renew them and renew everything else through them. We see God is deeply committed to restoring things in his world, to bringing back his blessing. And we learn that he's going to do it through his human family that, that he is picking. That's why this phrase is so important. If you look back in verse 6, a kingdom of, what are they called? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, that speaks to their function. It speaks to their identity. The idea is that so that when ancient people see this nation of Israel obeying and serving Yahweh, they go, oh my goodness, that's different. What, what is going on there? Like that's really, really unique. By them being faithful to the terms of this covenant, that's how God is going to bring back his blessing to the entire earth. Listen to one of the prophets who many years later, Israel is like horrible at this, they stink at it. And this, this prophet Isaiah comes along and he's pointing them back to, hey, do you remember that thing about what we were supposed to be our identity and mission? In Isaiah 42, five, he says, this is what God, Yahweh says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all, uh, all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, Yahweh, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. People are supposed to see you and go, ooh, what's that about? That's different. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. Remember? Who's this Yahweh? <laughs> I, I'm the one who's completely in charge and completely in control, and I've called you with a mission. I am Yahweh. That's my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols referring to the second commandment. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus, very much in line with this exact same call. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In that same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and same thing, what's that about? What's going on there? That's interesting. Peter, one of his closest followers in 1 Peter 2.9 says to his writers or to his readers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, he's, he's, he's linking to Exodus 19. God's special possession, exact 
uh, Exodus 19 language, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. During, during the second temple era, second temple era is you think about, you know, when Babylon comes in and destroys the temple takes, in fact, we're starting a series called exile on the weekends, life of Daniel. When they return like 70 years later and they build the temple in Ezekiel, uh, well, we've got the Nehemiah and these guys and, and, and they build that temple all the way until it's destroyed, though it's a slightly different temple in like 70 AD. That's called the second temple era. Okay. So during the second temple era, um, what's really fascinating is this, the, the, the way of life, the Jewish way of life, it was very attractive to a lot of Romans and a lot of Greeks. Because see, Roman culture was debauched. I mean, the Roman families were as screwed up and sideways as any modern Western family you could possibly imagine. And so the Jewish way of life is like super family-centered, uh, traditional, clear world view, moral. It was very attractive. That's why we read in the New Testament about uh, these groups they call the God-fearing Greeks. <laughs> Those are the ones who go, what's that about? And they inquire enough that they go, I want to follow this Yahweh. And so they're, 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 they're drawn to this Yahweh by how you live life differently. That's something different. I've never quite seen that before. Last thing, let me give you three categories. As, as we think about laws in the Old Testament, um, law is an ambiguous term, right? So we kind of need to define what we're talking about. Let me give you three uh, parts of law and ask some questions about, so like, do they apply to us? Any of them? All of them? None of them? Number one, there's what's called civil laws. Okay, civil laws, we, that kind of makes sense. These laws govern the society of Israel. Uh, they set the people apart and they set their structure of governance that, that shapes all of their social life. Okay, does that make sense? So some laws fall into that category, that bucket. There's what's called the ceremonial laws. Uh, these govern worshiping Yahweh. How do you do sacrifice? What do you have to do to come into sacred space? Ritual, liturgical life. And then there's the more, uh, moral laws. Moral laws are rooted in God's character, who God is. God is truth, therefore telling a lie is wrong. And they're also rooted in God's creation because his artwork reflects his mind. And so we use language like natural law theory, this idea that certain moral principles, moral laws are discoverable by virtue of being made in the image of God. Even if you don't have anything like this, <laughs> you don't have scripture, that you can still discover certain moral truths. So here's a question. Uh, which of these, like, do we need to care about any of these? Do we, need, do we live under any of these? Um, First, I would say, we don't live under anything of the Sinai covenant, <laughs> but let, we live under Jesus. But let me make some comments about these. How about the moral law? Does that apply to us? Remember, the moral law was not invented in Exodus 20. <laughs> these truths were known prior to the Sinai covenant. Now they're restated here, but these are moral truths that God expects his humans to know by virtue of conscience. So the, these moral 
truths and moral uh, obligations, we would even, uh, even say, this is, it's patterned after God's character. <clears throat> and in fact, this will shape our eternity in new creation, being these kinds of people. So yes, the moral law applies. Civil laws binding on us. No. God is no longer working through a socio-political entity. God is no longer working through a theocratic project among, like, one nation among other nations. It's completely different of that. And so much of the Old Testament laws relate to civic life. And then thirdly, this is maybe a little more difficult one. How about the ceremonial law? Jesus did not abolish any of the law. Remember, he was like real clear. A lot of times he was asked, because sometimes it looked like, do you not care about this stuff, Jesus? Because like you seem to be like dancing the line close. <laughs> and sometimes they accused him, of, you're going over the line. And Jesus had some very clear responses. Matthew um, 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, remember, to fulfill them. Read the book of Hebrews sometime, if you're, if you're at all interested in this. The whole point of almost the entire book of Hebrews is to show that Jesus is the end game of all of the religious ceremony that was given to Israel. The goal was met in the sacrifice offered once for all in the person of Jesus. A sacrifice that was perfect, it was complete, it was sufficient. Uh, read Romans chapter 3, and Paul is talking about this very thing. See, we're no longer required to carry like a little sheep into worship <laughs> to make a sacrifice so that I'm, I'm ceremonially clean in order to come into sacred space. Um, <clears throat> how many of you know what this little card right here is? I, um, I moved about two years ago, and during the unpacking... You see what it is? This is my Blockbuster membership card. <laughs> this thing was golden, right? Like this was my key to like eternal happiness as a kid, right? Because if I had, like what did, what, what did this membership get me? Yeah. Can you imagine going and being able to just rent whatever movie you want? I mean, I remember when we first, I remember my parents first bought us a VHS player. It was like 97 pounds, it was huge, this beautiful steel, and you press a button, it just, you know, push it and pop up, and, and we would go to the video store, and we would rent a movie, right? And then we'd come home and play. I remember before that, when we would have to go rent the DVD, or the DVD, the VHS player, like we did, they were like hundreds of dollars, it was absurd, you know? But this little thing, the reason why I had this, you know what, this is funny. There's a number, it's a call blockbuster. I called it today and this lady answered. She goes, hello? And I go, oh, I think of the wrong number. <laughs> but, but then I wonder, I wonder if, if, if she used to get calls and be like, is this blockbuster? She's like, stop calling me. <clears throat> um, but th this little card, this got me access, right? It, it, it allowed me to have access to, to movies, right? It was wonderful, right? It, it gave me that. I would suggest today, there is a more perfect way. It is called streaming, right? Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, right? Whatever it is that you have. The goal is the same, this to streaming, right? But, but the streaming of Netflix, it is a more, a more perfect way for me to get what it is that I want. 
What was the goal of the Sinai covenant? Because remember there was a temple. What's the goal of the ceremonial things? It's to get the Israelite access to the presence of God. I want to go to sacred space so I can connect with God. That, that, that is the goal of it. And the person I would need to be ceremonially pure to enter into sacred space. What is the goal of the new covenant through Jesus? It's the exact same goal. It's to get entrance, to get access into the very presence of God. But now we don't do it at one location like going to a blockbuster. <laughs> now it's a lot more like streaming his presence, his presence immediately with us. And see, that's exactly what's going on in this narrative. You, you, you underlined a few words at the beginning. Do you remember that? I want to go to the book of Acts. You don't need to turn there. I'll just direct your mind to it. But I want you to look at some of those words you underlined. The book of Acts, chapter 2. This is after Jesus' life, his death his burial, his resurrection. He tells his followers, Mary, he says, go to Jerusalem, wait. Why? Wait for what? Wait for the spirit to descend. Let me, let me read Luke and take a wild guess what Luke might have in the back of his mind as he's writing this. He says, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind. What does that sound like? Oh, that's storm theophany language. This is God's presence he's talking about here. In fact, he calls it fire later. You underline that. He's in the room. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing violent wind came from heaven, filled the house that they were in. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. But then this thing of fire, like, blows apart. It separates so this presence is now not going to one location. Where does it go to? Every person in the room, there's a fire hanging over, just like the mountain, just like the tabernacle, just like the temple. <laughs> Do you see what Luke is trying to get you and I, the reader, to see here? See, that's <clears throat> why this is way better than streaming movies access. <laughs> we have access to the very presence of God, the very spirit that rumbled in a storm over Mount Sinai, that thing that was so frightening, it's come to reside over every single person who places their life under the person of Jesus. And we have access to that exact same spirit. And we don't have to go to a physical building. Instead, what has become the temple? Followers of Jesus. At least that's what Paul thought. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. He said, do you not know? Don't you know? You're the temple of God. You're the tabernacle of God. You're, you're the top of Mount Sinai. You're, you're that location where God's presence, his powerful, transformative, matchless presence is uniquely dwelling, is uniquely active in this world. I mean, that's amazing. My question to myself is, do I live like that? How aware am I of that reality that the presence of God, that powerful, kind of scary, is so powerful. He says, I want to come, I'm going to come live with you, Brent. And the only thing that made that possible was what we celebrate. 
Because of this, because Jesus was that perfect sacrifice, he made us clean. <laughs> the thing that you had to achieve in the Old Testament with different things. He says, I, I, I've made you completely clean. You can enter into the very presence of God. In fact, Paul talks about the idea of you can go boldly into the presence of God because you know you're completely loved and completely accepted. And so we're going to celebrate that at this moment. We're going to remember, we're going to remind ourselves, <laughs> oh yeah, that's who I am. You are a little mobile temple this week. Remind yourselves of that. You are a little mobile temple if you have stepped into the way of Jesus. And this is what made it possible. <clears throat> my, my prayer for us, each one of us, is this week we would know we would know, we would know that Jesus has made us clean and that the Yahweh God of Mount Sinai resides in you, thinks of you as his temple, calls you to be his temple, and will use your life so that other people go, what's going on? What's that about? Amen? Amen.